Good afternoon, and welcome to today's SLIS Colloquia, a program uh, now in our sixth consecutive semester, brought to you by your School of Library and Information Science here at San Jose State University. I am Dr. Anthony Bernier, and along with Dale David, our technical producer, we are producing this series as part of the school's mission to be recognized as a leader in graduate education in library and information science. Before I introduce today's speaker, a few announcements. Please look over <clears throat> uh, our new colloquia presentations on the SLIS website all throughout the term, where you will also find a webcast archive of all of our previous over 50 presentations on the SLIS homepage at slisweb.sjsu.edu. We also offer our colloquia as free podcasts. Details on how to access these presentations, either through RSS feeds or the iTunes store, can be found on the colloquia page. Viewers can also now watch the SLIS colloquia on Blip TV, the popular video sharing website. The SLIS Blip TV channel can be accessed at sjsuslis.blip.tv. For our students, I would like to invite you to visit SLIS 21, the school-wide blog maintained by our Associate Director, Dr. Linda Main, on the school's homepage. SLIS 21 concentrates on school administration and curricular development and even invites your ideas for new classes. And for everyone in the SLIS community, I'd like to invite you to participate in SLIS Life, the school's social networking space. Meet people in your geographic area, talk with people interested in your area of specialization, or just lurk around and see what others are doing. You, you can find SLIS Life on the school's homepage. Finally, SLIS launched its Masters of Archive and Records Administration degree called MARA in the fall of 2008. MARA inaugurated a guest lecture series during the fall and these lectures will be included as part of the SLIS Colloquia Archive and thus accessible to the entire SLIS community. Professor David V. Lurcher has served a, as a school library media specialist in Nevada and Idaho at both elementary and secondary school levels. He has served as head of the editorial department with Libraries Unlimited and for 10 years is uh, president of the High Willow Research and Publishing. He earned his PhD from Indiana, Indiana University and taught at Purdue University, the University of Arkansas, the University of Oklahoma before coming to the School of Library and Information Science here at San Jose State University. Dr. Lorcher's courses include library, uh, School Library Media Center, Centers, uh, Design and Implementation of Instructional Strategies for Information and Collection Management. Dr. Lorcher is also former president of the American Association of School Librarians, and he is here today to talk about his most recent publication, The New Learning Commons, Where Learners Win, published in 2008 with Carol Colchin and Sandy Zwan. So on behalf of the faculty, it is my pleasure to today welcome back to the SLIS colloquia, Dr. David Lurcher. School libraries are kind of in a transition right now, and uh, so we, I wanted to um, kind of reflect on that and see uh, where, where we might be going in the future. Um, <clears throat> School libraries actually got their start by a piece of research done in uh, 1963 by uh, Mary Gaver at Rutgers University. And she compared, uh, at that time, uh, 
classroom libraries uh, in elementary school versus uh, centralized libraries and uh, found that kids who uh, were uh, in a school that had a centralized school library and a librarian uh, actually scored higher on achievement tests than those in, uh, that just were in schools with classroom libraries. That piece of research was testified before Congress and uh, uh, we received, uh, really it was the birth of elementary school uh, uh, library programs all throughout the United States. Uh, <laughs> since that time, the research uh, has that's been done by uh, uh, Keith Lance, uh, Ross Todd, and, and most latest by Doug Achterman, uh, has, and, and it's uh, mostly correlational and uh, qualitative research. The notion is, again, a repeating uh, uh, Gaver's notion that the centralized library plus the library staff and large collections and other factors seem to always turn up uh, uh, when we're looking at an, an increase in student achievement. And uh, uh, the latest one, Doug Ackerman, was done right here in California, so that's uh, really nice uh, for a a uh, base uh, here, uh, uh, in particularly at this time in our financial problems. Uh, during the, the time, uh, so since 1963, so we've been around about a half century, and uh, there have been evolutionary theme changes over the time uh, uh, since we've uh, really had school libraries. Uh, beginning from scheduled visits where uh, kids come to the library for a library lesson and story time, etc., to a much, a much more flexible schedule uh, where uh, uh, units of instruction pass through on a, a calendar rather than on a uh, uh, every week for 40 minutes or whatever. Uh, we've kind of progressed from library lessons toward the notion of inquiry, which is much more uh, 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 teaching kids to do in-depth research. We have uh, gone from isolated teaching in the library to more co a collaborative uh, and cooperative kind of stance where, where teachers actually uh, uh, and librarians join together and actually plan a, an entire uh, uh, learning experience. And we've gone from print collections through a multimedia phase and now into the digital world. And uh, we've gone from, of course, a low-tech, uh, book, mostly book-oriented program in the 50 years to a very high-tech uh, kind of uh, stance that's uh, now occurring in, in many schools so that there's kind of one-on-one -on -one computing in, in lots of schools around the country. Um, the question has, so um, the question, uh, it takes a half a century, have we really become central to teaching and learning? And uh, um, I'm afraid uh, the answer is mostly negative. Um, we haven't become central in the educational literature. My research on that one is that I have probably reviewed uh, at least 300 professional education books uh, for Teacher Librarian, the magazine, in the last uh, five years. And I can count on a single hand uh, uh, books that have been written outside the field that even mention the school library as part of, of uh, and uh, excellence in teaching, uh, it just does not exist. Um, we, we, uh, we are not uh, present in any uh, rec uh, excellence recognitions, uh, wholesale that is. For example, in California, we have California Distinguished Schools 
and uh, most do not even have a library. So you, you, you have the state imprimatur coming on to a program, and uh, how can that happen without uh, decent uh, library resources? But, it, but it's very common. Uh, we have little recognition in federal uh, funding and mandates uh, uh, that put us at the center of anything. We do have the Laura Bush grants, which uh, went out, uh, uh, f but they're probably going to end as the administration changes. And uh, we certainly have a, a, a mixed uh, a state uh, of uh, mandates in law about school libraries. So some states, for example, North Carolina and Arkansas, for example, has uh, that every school will have a school librarian, and it's funded from the state level. Uh, but many other states, like California, there is no mandate for a school library, so you have to take it out of the existing funding plan, and you don't get an extra salary to pay for the school librarian. Consequently, we have what we have in, in California, which is a very mixed, uh, 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 we are at the bottom of the, uh, of the ladder in uh, the number of school libraries that are, that are available. Um, then um, in times of financial exigency all over the country, reports are now coming in uh, uh, through the websites uh, that was just asked last week about uh, who's being impacted by the downturn in the economy. And we see that uh, uh, reports are coming in from even affluent districts that, that when push comes to shove, uh, school libraries often are on the chopping block. Uh, along with other arts programs and cultural kinds of things. Uh, the What Works Clearinghouse was set up um, uh, to support No Child Left Behind Act, and tested programs through scientific research uh, have an opportunity to come in and, say, and get some sort of a tap on the uh, um, approval list from the federal government. And uh, school libraries, uh, are, because we uh, have had mostly correlational uh, research and uh, uh, are not, um, are not uh, even recognized because they want, they want true scientific research. That is, they want uh, kids who are, you know, clinical trials like in medicine, and uh, that just has not been uh, any part of the, the research agenda uh, uh, in, in any magnitude in our field. But on the bright side, uh, we still have, across the nation, we have uh, wonderful leaders who do great things, and, uh, and, uh, in, and we, we find that really a, a library media program is only as good as the person who is working in it. And uh, so uh, we have a lot of winners of, of national awards, the School Library Media Program of the Year Award, which is done by AESL. And uh, just recently, uh, we've had a doctoral dissertation that has looked across schools and that, looking for wh wh what does make an excellent program. Uh, we have a, a second uh, review that's going to appear in Teacher Librarian, uh, the next issue, uh, looking back across the five years uh, of, of these programs to, to look at what really, what really helps them become uh, uh, you know, recognizable in their schools. And, and, and there are a number of teacher librarians across the, the uh, continent that are, that are recognized by their peers uh, each year and given teacher, the teacher of the Year Award. So, and, and also many states have uh, uh, recognition programs for administrators since it does seem to, excellence only seems to arise in schools where administrators understand the function of a, of a modern school library program. And uh, 
Uh, so uh, many states give administrators award. And then there's the fuzzy kind of things that happen uh, uh, when uh, Spokane, uh, Washington, uh, was going to lose their library's funding totally. Uh, you get a group of moms together and they uh, became a very activist group and played on the, the fuzzy feelings of everybody across the state and got a, million, a $4 million grant for, to keep uh, school libraries going across the state of Washington. And so there are some, some bright kinds of things that go on. However, I think, uh, you know, it's time to realize that, that over the last 50 years, the problem uh, is, uh, is that the, the kids have changed totally, and they are in a brand new world, and uh, they have their uh, technological devices, they, they are Google natives, uh, they, uh, um, and, and everything is convenience to them. And, and wh what they're doing is they're bypassing any library uh, totally and just going directly uh, uh, to information sources that they, they find uh, uh, very conveniently on whatever um, little device that they, they are comfortable with. And so, uh, of course, uh, the, the Pew Trust and, and the British Library have done uh, a fair, fairly recent studies on identifying uh, these, these kids. Uh, they, they've titled them the Google Generation, the kind of kid who bop, 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 bop's attention is, is at a premium. That is, you have very short attention spans and you're, you're flipping all over pages, etc. Uh, digital natives, uh, kids who have grown up in the digital world and they don't know that there was a previous kind of world or, or they're into social networks of all kinds. And uh, so, but however, just recently in the last uh, several weeks, uh, has come out a study uh, called The Myth of the Google Generation. And the notion here is not that the Google Generation does not exist. The notion here is that anybody, um, as we as adults who did not grow up in this generation, anytime we get immersed in technology, we become like these. We take on the characteristics. So think of your own behavior. Uh, you know, how often do you bypass your local library? How often do you go to Google first and the library last, etc.? So what is your own behavior? Uh, do you find yourself uh, uh, going all over the map and searching this and that? And, you know, what is your behavior? So that's uh, the point I think that's being made, that we're all migrating toward a, a different kind of behavior. And so if you're going to re, uh, it just thinks, uh, it seems to me that uh, if, if the, your clientele has changed totally, then you cannot continue to do what you've done in the past and expect to uh, have a clientele. If you opened a McDonald's restaurant and no one came, uh, like the Google generation and Googling around you, what, uh, you know, what reason to exist do you have? there's two ways to approach uh, this problem. You either, you do systematic progress, that is you try to keep honing your, your organization, uh, you know, evolutionary, or you do 180 degree thinking. That is you, you, you change everything around. And uh, the little metaphor of the, uh, the, the light globe, uh, to give you one example of what I'm talking about, it was said a couple of weeks ago on, on the news that uh, uh, the flu virus is famous uh, for mutating constantly. 
And uh, the flu virus evidently has uh, a bunch of little appendages like a light globe. So, and, and the mutation happens at the large part of the, the globe. And so it's constantly changing on, on the top of the globe. And that's why when they, when they try to get a, a flu vaccine to, to work, uh, you know, it will have changed by the time. And that's why this year's flu shots, for example, are not terribly effective against the strain that's going on. Uh, but there was a breakthrough uh, with an, a, a, a research team. Instead of trying to look at what's changing all the time, they were trying to figure out what is constant so that you could attack the constant part. And they find out that the stem of the light bulb uh, or the virus is the same. And so the notion is that, that, uh, that if you learn to attack the, 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 uh, the base of the light globe that's always the same, then you, can, you won't have to worry about what's going on further because it will be uh, dead. So, that's a, so what we're thinking about here is when you're theory building, you try to, to, to not only, uh, you're looking at many different kinds of ways of, of, of thinking about things. And, uh, <coughs> It, it dawns on me that there are two great business models that are going on today. One is the Microsoft model, which is the systematic uh, uh, evolutionary change. It's kind of the organizational-based uh, uh, idea. And uh, Microsoft's uh, idea is that if you build it, they will come. And that idea is that we will create this Microsoft Office and it will be, we will control its content, we will control how it's being used. In fact, we will take over the user's computer so that we can give and take away at any time that we want to. And uh, they will use it on our terms. So we get to learn their rules. The opposite is the Google model where you give people a lot of tools and they construct out of it what they will. And often as you design things, you are not sure what is actually going to result, uh, what the result will be, uh, because you have only given them opportunities, for example. So uh, I've been looking at, at what if we just redesigned school libraries on the Google model, that is shift from an organizational base to a, a point of view to a client side point of view. And the client side means if they build it, they'll use it. And uh, so that is a, a major kind of shift in, in the thinking. So, uh, <coughs> so the idea is that maybe the Library Media Center, as it's been constructed for the last half century, could be shifted toward uh, a, a different concept called the Learning Commons. And I took that uh, from uh, uh, a number of experiments in uh, university libraries that are creating Learning Commons. And, uh, but uh, the kinds of thinking that I began to do kind of goes way beyond uh, what the early thinking of learning commons was. So um, f first I think we need to uh, think that this client center place uh, might happen in both a physical place but also a virtual place. So that two, two things are happening side by side because your clientele, while they are in a physical location, school, they're mostly, their heads are in this virtual space and so you're going to have to 
to be uh, there in, in president. And what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to move directly into their space. They're not going to move into your space. So you have to be very aggressive to get into uh, their heads. And so uh, let's take a look at uh, what, what I would uh, call a virtual learning commons. Um, I see it as a giant conversation going on. A conversation uh, among, who, uh, among the different players here we see, administrators, teachers, uh, uh, the uh, learners themselves, the teacher librarians, and uh, the, uh, the parents. And what you're, you're going to see here is everybody's contributing. Everybody is building. So it's not a, it's not a library website. A website is a one-way uh, stream of communication. Everybody is building this, uh, this knowledge center, this digital uh, uh, learning commons. <clears throat> so what do we see as the component parts of this? Uh, you first want lots of collaborative uh, web 2.0 tools. And so, of course, we know about wikis and blogs, but also NINGs and environments where everybody is participating uh, collaboratively in building together rather than uh, assignments that kids are independently doing and passing in, this whole uh, notion of collaborative work. And then you've got uh, user-created tutorials. Instead of the librarian doing the tutorial of how to do something, uh, kids are. For example, the program Jing, my students are uh, experimenting with that, both either video or creating PowerPoints. A very simple thing. It takes about two minutes to teach uh, uh, somebody how to use Jing, and then everybody is helping everyone else uh, and can do uh, uh, packaged uh, programs as well as one-on-one uh, uh, -on -one tu tutoring. And then you think of the whole idea of tagging, uh, uh, creating folksonomies, and uh, uh, I was talking on the train this morning about Yelp, uh, and Yelp is a place where, you know, you might find a restaurant, etc., but if you turn it over into the learning commons, it would, uh, kids would be uh, social networking with other kids who were uh, tackling different assignments. And everybody, instead of the restaurant, you're saying, oh, it's that database or this URL or uh, this kind of thing. So you open up a, a virtual reference center uh, so that everybody is participating uh, and advising uh, everyone else on what to do and how to do it and, and uh, sharing, etc. Assignment conversations. Uh, did a, the last colloquium I did, uh, we had uh, uh, Williams, uh, my uh, grad assistant, and I taught uh, a method that we created using iGoogle. And uh, what uh, teaching every kid to have, uh, to come into control and command of their own information space. And uh, as you do that, then you get a, a blog. Uh, uh, the, the teacher librarian creates a blog for every teacher and uh, so the assignments go on that and the blog of course is a conversation and on that conversation is the teacher, the teacher librarian and the students. They're conversing about the assignment so that the, and then they link, they link that, that teacher's assignment blog directly to a, a kid's iGoogle page through the RSS feed so that what, what happens is that any time a change is made here, it automatically appears on, in the kids' space. So the notion here is that the librarian moves directly in to the conversation of the assignment rather than being 
you know, uh, available in the library for reference consultation if you happen to be able to get there. Uh, so we're thinking of 24-7 conversation about assignments and uh, we don't have to be invited in, we're in. We don't have to be invited in, we create the situation where we are at the center. And then things like uh, Keti, uh, which is a, a virtual museum and it's open source so that every school learning commons can have a museum of, like YouTube of all of the of, of productions of kids, poetry readings, uh, original poetry readings, uh, great projects, uh, collaborative stuff and it, and it archives uh, as like a, something like a school yearbook. Uh, uh, and virtually, and uh, we're going to test this out in my class this, uh, this semester as we get Kitty up and running. The iGoogle miracle, uh, as, as I've talked about it, uh, you, you see everything is revolving together as, as teachers are working through assignments and uh, the, t the team and, and the RSS feed is what really, really uh, makes this uh, a collaborative space rather than a directive space, okay? The uh, physical learning pro uh, commons is, is not dissimilar to what, uh, what we already have except that it has two overlapping components in my head and one is the open commons uh, and I'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, the second is the experimental learning center and so they share the same space. That means that we have to have a whole new idea of what space looks like. And so someone defined the learning commons as a place where the books don't get in the way. So if you look into most school libraries now, you have all sorts of uh, bookshelves protruding out. You have, you have desks of computers in a, uh, uh, um, in, a, in a large row where kids are working on them. And uh, uh, suddenly this, this has to, it has to turn flexible uh, to, to uh, to work uh, as, as a, a really collaborative space. So um, in the open commons, uh, uh, it has its own calendar and it's mostly run by uh, paraprofessionals rather than, than uh, the professionals. There, through this is a parade of exemplary learning experiences that are going on in the school. So if I were a teacher and I was doing a great job of doing one thing, I would get an appointment to actually conduct uh, this great learning experience which is probably collaborative with the teacher librarian or one of the other specialists in the school, I would demonstrate it to the entire school by bringing it to the uh, learning commons and so uh, uh, administrators if they wanted to parade someone through uh, to see what uh, uh, great teaching and learning was in the school, they, they bring everybody to the learning commons where that is actually happening. Uh, you, you think about a cultural center. Um, uh, uh, I went to uh, one of uh, these in uh, Massachusetts, a high school library where you, you hold lunch in the library and everybody comes, they, they, they open up the whole space, uh, have 200 kids in the high school coming for lunch uh, and over a two and a half hour period. Uh, they listen to each other. Uh, they have uh, artists, uh, poetry readings, dramatic presentations, uh, musical groups of all kinds uh, are working so that, so that the learning commons becomes the cultural center of the school where everyone is exhibiting for everyone else uh, wh what is actually happening. 
And uh, so you've got small and large group collaborations so that all the furniture has to move around. You can't have solid furniture. So you, you, you have uh, uh, furniture like in, in the room that we're in now, so it's on wheels and, and uh, so you, uh, you know what the configuration is at, at the moment is not what might be happening next, uh, next hour. And uh, it's certainly a comfortable place. Uh, in the high school learning commons that I was at, uh, there's a, they have a, an espresso bar. Uh, they have the listening lunches. They have booths like you would find in a, in a, a restaurant where you can sit down and have a foursome. Uh, they have uh, tall tables uh, with chairs around it like you would sit in a restaurant. And uh, so it's a very comfortable, and kids like to come. They want to come there because it is such a, a, a great place to be. And uh, another idea is that all the specialists in the school uh, might office there, whether physically or, um, or uh, virtually. Uh, a, a quick story from Canada. Um, they, uh, in Canada, they were worried about, in many, many schools, about the dropout rate. And so they hire a, a, a person called uh, a learning suc for success teacher or some, they give her some kind of title. And uh, so uh, one lady uh, uh, that I interviewed uh, talked about uh, going to the school the first day, uh, going to the office to find out where her office was going to be in the administrative suite and the principal uh, saying, uh, well, apologizing, saying, well, I'm sorry there is no space uh, in the administrative office. You'll have to go around the building and see if you can find a place to office. And so this person uh, 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 went around, uh, was very incensed. I mean, she obviously felt uh, that she wasn't important enough to uh, to merit uh, space in the office, administrative office suite. So she is uh, uh, loping around the school trying to find something and can't and ends up in the library some way and almost in tears. And the librarian uh, says, uh, well, you know, we do have, I do have a closet here uh, that's just got a bunch of junk in it. Maybe we could, uh, maybe we could just kind of clean it out and give you a little space to work in. Uh, and so that's what happened. Well, uh, what really happened was when you put uh, two very creative people uh, together in a similar space, which at first uh, uh, one would think they didn't have much, uh, much in common, what they actually did was found out they had much more in common as specialists in the school than they had that were, were dissimilar. And so since, uh, you know, the, the uh, teacher librarian was very interested in getting a lot of kids that were non-readers to read, and of course that fit into the, the uh, students for success person who obviously was working with a non-reading crowd. So they did wonderful things together, which, which uh, teaches me that uh, uh, there are a lot of specialists in the school and in the university. And uh, these folks uh, office in different locations. They are all trying to get into the classroom and make some sort of difference. And uh, what they find themselves is locked out of the classroom, particularly under no child left behind kinds of ideas where uh, you know, the classroom door has locked shut because we have to sit down, shut up, you know, read our stuff, get ready to take the test, we learn bubbling techniques, etc. 
And uh, so it dawned on me that if we put all the specialists, quote, together in a professional learning community, together they could uh, take an axe and knock down the classroom door and, uh, and teach that two heads are better than one, rather than always just uh, rely on a, a single uh, adult in, in front of 30 kids and doing some sort of miracle now in the particularly diverse classrooms we have in this country. Uh, so uh, then there's the, the idea of the experimental learning center comes. Uh, uh, well, why, why should we have a place in the school that is actually an experimental development center? And why would it be in the learning commons? And the question, of, I mean the answer of course is that it's politically neutral territory. It doesn't belong to any department. It doesn't belong to a grade level. And thus it, it belongs to everyone. So it is the logical place to, to do what? All school improvement, all, all experimentation in school improvement comes through that learning commons. Or we could extend this to the university level. And that when you're trying to achieve certain things, that is the place. It's neutral territory. That's the place where the principal would bring all the, um, you know, uh, visitors to the school, school boards, experts, any expert coming to the school, that's where they're going to teach or do uh, any of their professional development activities. Uh, that's going to happen in the learning commons. And so that means that you, you have the open commons and the experimental learning center side by side. That means you've got adults and kids working simultaneously within the same space. And so that's why the space has to change constantly to to handle uh, these two major functions. And so all the action research that's going on in the building is actually centered, may not be happening, but it's centered in the uh, learning commons. And uh, so uh, uh, again, we've got this showcase start to appear. We've got uh, new technologies that are coming uh, into the school. They're all tested in the learning commons by both students and ad adults before they're implemented and pushed out into the an entire uh, school as a whole. So uh, that's kind of the, the notion of an experimental learning center. And uh, so, uh, but would it work? One, one constructs a theoretical model uh, based on the best uh, research you can find, uh, you know, not just in your field, but in other fields. And, and you try to put all kinds of ideas together. And will it really work? Well, I actually visited uh, uh, this, uh, this one just came across the wires yesterday uh, of uh, the North Carolina Central University. And if you go to the Learning Commons website, this is actually uh, uh, a changing view. Uh, this is the center of the Learning Commons. As you can see, these are, uh, I guess, movable kinds of uh, uh, spaces where there's, uh, you know, there's wireless within the, the Learning Commons. And so these are groupings of kids. But what you're seeing here is that a red dot indicates that that is busy being used right now. And the green dots, I guess, if you can see that, uh, are spaces that you could uh, occupy. And I guess this is on some kind of a sign so that you walk in and you can, you can see uh, you know, what's going on. And, and, and this is constantly changing as, uh, as, as the actual. So it's really a fluid diagram, which I hadn't seen before, but it seems a, 
very attractive. And, but I have been actually to a, a high school learning commons in Chelmsford, Massachusetts with uh, a great uh, Valerie Diggs and what, uh, and uh, <coughs> Ross Todd and, and uh, Carol Gordon from Rutgers University and I visited this place. And uh, what you get here is a, a really fabulous uh, uh, teacher librarian who understands kids and so she's in a very terrible situation as far as the facility is concerned, cons a place that was constructed uh, in the 1970s for the multimedia revolution but certainly not the digital uh, age and uh, so she begins not with trying to change the facility, she begins with uh, the idea of the program, that is you have to, you have to get uh, kids want a cultural center. So she builds a cultural center uh, in spite of her facilities. She, she begins collaborating with the faculty to, to build great learning experiences that are very collaborative and, and using technology. As I interviewed faculty, they respected her over the five years that she's been there uh, because she is the, a techno wizard, but not a techno wizard in the sense that she can help you operate your equipment. She's a techno wizard in, in applying technology to help kids learn more in less time. And uh, so uh, uh, she builds this program and then the community starts to recognize that the facility is, is just not doing what needs to be done in this place. And so she gets tremendous support throughout the community, revamps the entire place into a very, very beautiful place where the, in, uh, the, uh, the state legislator uh, came uh, that night, the mayor, everybody who was important in the city came to, uh, to come to the dedication of this place. But the students are the ones that love this place. And they, they so in, instead of a, a place that is inviting, the students have taken it over. The faculty have taken it over as their place. And so I start to see that the switch from an organizational-based program of one-way communications, here is our book collection if you'd like to come and get it. Here is our website if you would care to click on it, uh, which is not happening anymore. Instead, you just move right in to, to the, the social uh, networking that the kids are into now and what you're doing is you're teaching them to to bend those social networking skills over into their academic skills. It's a very very exciting thing to look at and and watch the kids as they their behavior changes so that really you're you know you're using you're outfoxing you're using Google to to uh, to beat Google in that sense. You're using the, the technologies that everybody was, was uh, uh, you know, going to 99% of the time and suddenly you're changing that behavior um, uh, through a, a whole collaborative kind of notion. So um, I do not see uh, that the current model of school libraries, perhaps any library, uh, that has worked for 50 years, I just don't see it working for the next 50 years. And uh, I, I can only see that you have to have radical change, not evolutionary change, if we are going to remain in business because our clientele 
is telling us already. When I talk uh, around the country, I say, you know, if you had students rank uh, the information sources they use, you know, from number one to number five, you know, how many of you would be number one on the list? And I just don't think it's happening. And uh, we, we just cannot continue on a model that was perfectly good in the 1960s when it was invented. But uh, like General Motors, uh, you know, if you're out, out of the loop, you're out of the loop. And, uh, you know, what is, what is the future? So, and uh, with that, I'll, I'll uh, say thank you and uh, answer any questions that you might uh, have. Uh, we have about ten, 10 minutes if you'd like to. If I haven't said something controversial, I'm, I'm very, I apologize for that. Uh, so, uh, uh, well, for example, uh, just, uh, you know, here's uh, the, the new Kindle 2. And uh, uh, it can be uh, download uh, 1,500 books uh, to this device. And so I'm saying to uh, school librarians, you know, you need to equip every kid with a Kindle, give them a credit card uh, so they can download what they want to on, and get rid of half of your collection. You know, just, uh, uh, you, you only need about, um, you know, half the bookshelves that you once have. I mean, everybody assumes, for example, everybody assumes that, that you need enough shelving to handle the books that you own. And I'm saying, no, you don't need that. Uh, you only need shelving for half of your print collection. And uh, because the first day of school, you're going to check out half of the collection into rotating classroom collections. And, um, and, and so you only need half the, the, the space to, because you only have half the collection at any given time that has to have a place to park. And anyway, the, these kind of devices, uh, you know, um, I mean, who's going to decide on whether the printed book uh, is here in another, uh, you know, decade or two? Uh, well, the user's going to make the decision. It's not the librarian. But I find librarians to be very protective of the printed book. And uh, they seem to be uh, extremely reluctant to provide the opportunity to, you know, uh, to move to a different technology uh, when it's obvious, it should be obvious to them that their kids have already migrated, uh, you know, and uh, so, uh, you know, I mean, if I can carry 1,500 books uh, with me at all times, you know, why would I want to, you know, have to walk down the hall to a, a place? Uh, I have everything right here, and convenience is everything, so. Well, we already down. We already buy uh, printed volumes, you know. So, our, yeah. So the library would have the major credit card, and you download just like I think a lot of we have the model kind of in eBooks right now. It's kind of the chairs notion. I don't think uh, Amazon.com has come over to uh, that sort of uh, you know sharing kind of thing, but I think that's on the horizon, and so you know we can download to our hundred Kindles, uh, you know, various titles. And, but right now, I'd like to see a, a, just have 10 Kindles with, uh, you know, 50 different titles on each one and pass it around, uh, you know, and, and, and ha form a Kindle book club. And everybody's reading maybe a few of the titles. Uh, for example, if Harry Potter uh, eight came out on July 24th or whenever it came out, uh, 
you know, at midnight we, we download, uh, you know, our 100 Kindles with a, a copy for two weeks and uh, everybody reads it. We cancel school the next day and uh, while they read uh, the 800 pages of Harry Potter, right, or whatever, and uh, then we talk about it the day after. I mean, those kinds of possibilities now uh, um, on the horizon are, and then we don't have to have, you know, invested in physical volumes. Talk about the ecology of all this, uh, you know, talk about a green technology, we're, we're thinking of that. But what we're really thinking of, it's not the technology that's the, the matter, it's how much your kid's reading, and what kind of reading opportunities are we, are we providing. And if we, we think that uh, the world now is, if I want to see a movie, or I want to hear a song, or I want to read a book, it's got to be right there instantly. And the more we provide this to uh, young people, uh, the, the research is already in that kids actually read more when it's convenient. And uh, so that's what we want because when, when they're doing that, their actual academic achievement starts going up because their reading fluency is affected, their comprehension, their spelling, their grammar, all sorts of things happen the more they read. So we are just facilitating that. And so it's just fine. Well, you see, you know, I mean, which would you as a student or a parent uh, rather have? Would you rather have 40 pounds of textbooks on a kid's back or would you rather have a device like this? And so uh, uh, Amazon has made it very simple to upload your PDF files, which all publishers have now. And uh, so it's just, I think it's just a matter of, uh, of time before kids have their own personal device. And maybe not one personal device. You know, it doesn't have to be the Kindle. It can be the iPhone, the Kindle, the, the, the X, the Y, the Z, you know. And so any preferred device a kid can have. I mean, this is my preferred device because of my low vision. You know, I, uh, this will read to me. And so it reads text to speech. And so uh, I just put on my headphones and listen to a book, any book. Any book that can come on here, I can listen to. And so, uh, you know, uh, but that, so that's my preference. But, you know, a kid can have a laptop computer, you know. They can have their, Mac, they can have their MacBook Air, you know, if that's the device they want to work on. So it really doesn't matter. So, yeah, it's kind of device flexible. Well, I think uh, we've got to be out of our, our room here in uh, just a, a minute. I'll be available after if anyone liked uh, questions, but it's a really exciting world, is what I'm saying. Thank you very much. <clears throat>